Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenig. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the the Box. Great to be back with you again today on Beyond the Box. I'm so glad you joined us. I think we've got a really good discussion in store for you today. I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Peter Enns in this episode for a discussion about a couple of different things, primarily about the nature of Scripture and how we really are to look at what it means for Scripture to be inspired and what it means for Scripture to be both divinely inspired and written by human authors. Um, But also, Dr. Enns has written a book entitled The Evolution of Adam that examines Scripture in light of the theory of evolution and looks at things like Paul's use of Adam and the first 11 chapters of Genesis and just some different things like that that we want to discuss in this episode as well. We've talked a lot in the last two to three years, especially about the nature of Scripture, what is what is the Bible? Uh, what was God's intention for us to have the Bible? Have we misused the Bible? Do we sometimes commit biblio-adultery and make the Bible the fourth member of the Trinity? I think we do. And Steve and I have really wrestled for a good while about what the actual nature of Scripture even is. So I think this conversation really contributes to us going further down the road and understanding um kind of what we're to what we're to do with the Bible and how we're to respond to biblical inspiration and both divine and human authorship. I think you're going to enjoy this discussion. So get that seatbelt off, <laughs> recline your chair, here comes the roller coaster as we join Dr. Peter Enns for a great discussion on the nature of Scripture. Well, I am pleased today to be joined by Dr. Peter Enns. Um, Peter Enns has written a couple of wonderful books that I highly recommend, one entitled Inspiration and Incarnation, and another entitled The Evolution of Adam. And I am just so thankful for your work, Dr. Enns. Thank you so much for being on Beyond the Box today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. In both books, you seem to really do a lot of work on um, really understanding the nature of Scripture in Some people would say a new way. I think it's really more of an old way. Um, It seems like what we're doing today with fundamentalism and and some of the conservative evangelical readings of Scripture seem to be a little more, uh, a little newer than what they would like to admit. Um, You intentionally, in the first title of your book, Inspiration and Incarnation, you intentionally link those two ideas together of inspiration and incarnation. Can you tell us how you see those things working together in the Bible? I try to use um, language that would help people appreciate um, less problematically what the Bible really seems to be doing. Um, and not just my private opinion, but like you said, there there isn't really much in that those books that are new. They're old hat, quite frankly. Uh, but they still consider, they're, they're still typically problems in many iterations of evangelicalism and, and fundamentalism. And so those two terms there, I try to uh, link together the idea of incarnation 
Christ's incarnation with the idea of what it means for God to inspire hmm. a text. Hmm. And the connection between the two is that uh, the inspiration of the text does not um, yield us a Bible that's dissociated from its cultural context, just like the Jesus that we have is not dissociated from his cultural context. Mm. They both are there, and so, you know, if we accept that, as we you know gladly do with Jesus, there are implications of that for how we think of the Bible, too. Sure, Absolutely. Uh, you say that in, in, in Inspiration Incarnation, I'm going to quote you, you say that the problem many of us feel regarding the Bible may have less to do with the Bible itself and more to do with our own pre- preconceptions. And I, I take it to mean the preconceptions of what we believe about the Bible. Can you mm-hmm. tell us about some of the wrong assumptions and preconceptions that you believe we bring to the text when we read the Bible? Uh, well, for example, the... Um the assumption that a book that's worthy of being called God's Word would never have uh, contain um, mythic stories, mm. uh, because God wouldn't do that sort of thing. And, and that's, that is a preconception that I think is very common. Um, I, I do hear it very commonly, quite regularly, from, from critics. Um, and, and uh, you know, this is a... a um, a preconception that actually creates problems with the biblical text. It doesn't take them away, it creates them. If you look at things like Genesis in the context of the ancient world in which it was written and what the people at the time would likely have understood, and we have information about that that helps us uh, what I say in, in, in my other book, The Evolution of Adam, helps us calibrate the genre of Genesis. Mm. It helps us understand the basic ballpark of something we're dealing with. That doesn't answer all the interpretive questions. That doesn't mean you have to do a lot of thinking and a lot of digging. But you know, fundamentally, you don't look at, say, Genesis chapter 1 and say this describes, uh, this is a pre-scientific account, mm. you know, um, an early scientific account of creation. It's something else. It's something that would have spoken to the people in the ancient world. Mm. Now, now, you used a word um, when you were when you were just responding, myth, and that word has it, it's really a loaded word, especially for True. conservatives. Can you yeah. kind of tell us uh, tease that out a little bit? Tell us what you mean when you say myth. Well, what I what I mean by it, and and again, there are um, numerous types of definitions of what myth means. And I, I try to define it in the book as pre-scientific ancient accounts of origins hmm. of, um, of and how those things and how, how creation, how the cosmos came about, um, which is tied up in, um, how do I put it, What's, what the gods are doing up there. Right, that's ancient Near Eastern ideology. Right. What what Genesis does is it sort of gives one God <laughs> this responsibility. It's 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 the God of Israel who is um, the one doing it up there. Mm, mm. See, in Genesis one, he's he's sort of lofty and on the throne, so to speak. That's not you know said explicitly, but God's up there and out there, sort of directing traffic in the cosmos and and ordering things and putting things where they belong. Um, that is, you know, very similar to ideas that we see in other cultures, whether Canaanite or, or Mesopotamian or also Egyptian, uh, 
and and the Bible that it speaks in those categories, those mythic categories. Um, it's not. It's um, you know one writer puts it. It's transhistorical. Mm. It, it's beyond the particulars and the mundane. It's saying something very big and very sweeping about the nature of let's say ultimate reality. Mm. Mm. But it's using ancient categories and language to do that. Almost like the same way I guess that we use things like anthropomorphisms and and things like that in our own context. It's mm-hmm. it's just using the language of the ancient world instead of. Like you said, instead of the scientific, uh, mm-hmm. I had never until I'd really read your books. That didn't really register with me. I, I had read this idea before, but it really registered with me when you talked about how um, you know a scientific mindset, a modernistic mindset, was a really recent occurrence, and to try and superimpose that back into the ancient world is really is is getting the cart before the horse, so to speak. And and what it betrays is. Um how beholden, this is a rather sweeping statement, so bear with me, but how beholden, let's say, contemporary evangelical and fundamentalism is to what Tom Wright and T. Wright calls uh, the the myth of the Enlightenment, Mm. that this is ultimate reality, how we see things. You know, it always corresponds to what you can test or see or observe. Um, If the ancients didn't think that way, and if we actually believe that God comes down to our level, uh, we need to do some serious rethinking about mm. how to read Genesis, mm. which, uh, as you said, is not entirely unique. I mean, there are pressures upon us that were not upon people in, let's say, the pre-scientific era, like fossils and human genome and the age and size of the universe and things like that. I mean, we do have specific things to deal with, but, uh, you know, there are earlier segments and epics of the church that were very quick to look at things like Genesis and be on a much sort of higher theological, allegorical level very quickly, because that's where you find ultimate truth. You don't find it and how this thing, you know, truth is not defined by how clearly this corresponds to space-time actually touch at concrete reality. Mm, mm. That is more a shadow of something that might be larger and bigger, that's so big and so large it can only be communicated in, let's say, let's not use the word myth, but in, in, in story form with categories that people are familiar with. Mm, mm. In talking about this human dimension of scripture, the idea, you know, so many times we have overemphasized um, the the divine agency and inspiration of scripture that we've totally missed out on the human dimension. You really bring that to light in your book. Would you say that the main earmark of the human dimension of scripture is its situatedness in the in the cultural context that it was written in? Uh, yes, I would. I would probably say that, but I would also want to add that. Uh, it's not like there's human on this side and sort of like, but the divine stuff you see over here. Mm. You know, in other words, a common evangelical apologetic is that, yeah, you know, the Bible is sort of situated in its culture, but you know it's the Word of God by how it rises above it. Mm. And I, I get the point, but I would rather, I mean, I'm trying to sort of communicate this in some of my writing, to to, to think of... God is actually there 
<laughs> participating in the humanity. Mm, mm. And if if it pleases him to speak this way, right? Um, I mean, we we need to. Um, if God's going to, you know, go to this length, let's say, to come down to our level, and then we say, yeah, that's really nice of you, but the real thing is back and beyond. Huh. You know, I, wow. I, I find that to be theologically a, a theologically problematic starting point. It's almost like we're telling God we don't like the way you did it. <laughs> well, in a way, you know, hmm. or, you know, we understand, God, you had to sort of constrain yourself to these silly people. We know better now, and um, there's almost an arrogance to that. There's um, uh, almost a actually disrespect for the Bible, mm, mm. right? Yeah. You know, there's um, Herman Bovink, who's a Dutch theologian. I, I quote him a lot, and um, he has a lot of things to say about this that are somewhat diverse. But uh, there's one point where he talks about how um, Scripture is ignoble. You know, it has, it has a non-nobility to it. It's sort of normal, and it's it's despised almost. It's it, he's painting this picture of scripture as in a state of humiliation, mm, mm. like Christ is in a state of humiliation, and it's exactly in that humiliation that um, he says something like that: glory is revealed. Mm. That is the pattern of how God acts, and if the gospel is maybe a paradigm for that. Mm. We can look at the Bible, and you know maybe people won't be quite as uh, you know jump to conclusions, let's say, about mythic elements in the Bible, or the fact that you know the biblical authors don't tell history straight; hmm. they tell history from a, from a very decided theological point of view because they want to get something across. Hmm. And we won't say, well, God would never do that. Well, all historians do that. So uh, to me, what I really get from what you're saying, Dr. Enns, is that you're, you are really um, saying that the incarnation, God's, God's condescension in human flesh is really his MO. That's how he reveals himself, both in the ultimate revelation of Jesus, but also in scripture. And that for us to, for us to try and clean that up and us to try and reconcile those, see, th- those contradictions and those those uh, different theological voices in Scripture is really to do a real disservice to what it is. Yeah, it, it's to say that it, this isn't good enough. Mm, mm. You, you talk a lot about the backdrop of ancient Near Eastern literature and its importance for understanding the Bible, like things like the Enuma Elish and Genesis and, and the similarities that those share in the creation narratives, the flood stories with the Epic of Gilgamesh and all these kinds of things. Can you kind of tell us about about how the Bible shares this similar background, but then also the natural question that kind of comes to the fore when you when you begin to ask these sorts of things is how can we speak of the Bible as revelation if it's so similar to all of these other ancient Near Eastern documents? And on one level, that question can't really be answered. Um, you know, how can we speak of this revelation if you know, revelation, if uh, by definition, revelation means condescending. Because mm, mm. it's not revel- revealing up there and we look up, so to speak. Right. You know, pardon the spatial metaphor, it's God revealing by coming down. So, you know, maybe there's a sense, and I'm just sort of riffing here, but maybe there's a sense in which even the similarities are the stuff of revelation, mm. not just the distinctives. 
Maybe they're both working together somehow to do something uh, big and grand. Mm. Right? Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I will say that, you know, everyone, this is not just me, everyone will say this, that you know, the Bible doesn't copy from these other things. It isn't like, you know, i got to tell the same story. It tells it very differently, and there are emphases that don't, they don't prove revelation. You can't point to this and say, ah, oh, this is revelatory. But you can see a distinctiveness and even a uniqueness on some level for how the biblical story of the flood or of creation uh, is different. You know, and, and a, a common example that, you know, people like to pick on because it's sort of funny is that, you know, in, in the Atrahasis epic, uh, the telling of the flood story, the gods send a flood because the, the people that, that were created to do the work for them were making too much noise and they couldn't get their sleep. <laughs> and, you know, the Bible, the biblical story has tremendous similarity with these, this ubiquitous ancient flood story. But also, it, I mean, it puts a well-known different angle on that because it's saying something about this is our God. What he's really concerned about is that the people that he created are not bearing his image well. Mm, mm. You know, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And, you know, that term later in the Bible is holiness. They're they're not um, fulfilling the... Uh, uh, the 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 role and place in creation that God Himself had put in order. Mm, mm. They're actually, uh, you know, they're they're acting counter to to creation itself. Huh. Right. I mean, and, and that's a different spin. It's a different way of looking at it. And it's not so much that, you know, now the biblical story is more historically accurate. It's look at what the story is trying to communicate. Look at what the writer is saying about God and about what people should be like using this familiar story and maneuvering it, so to speak, so, so transforming you're, you're, transposing it. You're almost saying that they, they basically are borrowing the cultural um, the cultural myths. They're, they're borrowing from them, but they're telling them in such a way, in a nuanced way, that points to... To, that mm -hmm. points to Yahweh instead of the polytheistic gods of of the cultures surrounding Israel, right? Okay. Because if you're trying to make an argument that Yahweh is better than the gods of Canaan or the gods of Mesopotamia, that contrast only works if there is also an assumed similarity from which the contrast is made. Mm. Otherwise, it's apples and oranges, mm. right? So, our God is better because look how he did creation, mm, mm. you know, in the span of a few verses in what we call Genesis chapter 1. Mm. Right, so the, the only thing, you know, Raven, what I might want to um, word slightly differently, and you probably didn't mean anything by it, but the whole issue of borrowing implies almost a conscious adaptation. Mm. Like uh, the biblical writers are saying, I think I'll borrow this story to make it say something. It's probably much deeper, more subtle than that, that those mythic categories actually represent how all ancient peoples at this place and this time thought about these ultimate questions. Okay, okay. So it wasn't like they said, yeah, I guess we'll throw a bone and use this myth even though we know better. Gotcha. It's, that's how they thought, and 
but there was still a reality of of the nature of God that was communicated through that messy, down and dirty thing we call myth. <laughs> you know, that was still used and made, and a point was made from that. And I think we lose that if we're sort of embarrassed about the Bible. It's almost similar to Jesus laying in a manger, isn't it? That God's revelation yeah. is coming in this messy, dirty. Uh, right. animalistic <laughs> uh, right. thing that we don't like, that we like to clean up. Um, it's true, and, and we're uncomfortable with it. Um, I, I think, again, pardon the overstatement uh, and the hyperbole, but I, I sometimes feel as if uh, uh, too many Christians are actually, at the end of the day, uncomfortable with God among us. Mm, They're wow. uncomfortable with incarnation. Mm. I mean, in a sense, if you think about it, it is terrifying. It's also mysterious. Who understands it? Yeah. Right? I mean, God is among us and with us. We sort of like him to be up there and stay in his place. Mm. Mm. Make a cameo appearance every now and then. <laughs> Inspire the Bible, but please get out of our way. We'll handle it from here. You know? um, and I, I think incarnation is a wonderfully inconvenient and unsettling thing to um to to have as as one of the central pillars of your faith mm, mm, but it, it, it's messy and beautiful all at once <laughs> mm-hmm. right you, you you talk about and you you alluded to this a little bit earlier about the idea of historiography in the bible and the idea that the bible and, and that really all historiography has an agenda um can you talk a little bit about historiography and the Bible, what historiography is, and and why maybe we shouldn't look at the Bible as an unbiased view of history? Yeah, and I think there um, the question very quickly becomes concrete. This is not an abstract issue, because what we have in the Bible is multiple versions of the same historical events. And in the New Testament, you have the Gospels. And in the Old Testament, you have um, things like uh, somewhat differing accounts of the conquest in Joshua and Judges, but predominantly you have um, two drawn-out historical accounts of the monarchic period, of the monarchy. The first is in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and the second one is in First and Second Chronicles. And uh, the differences between them um, if we try to reconcile them and merge them into one, we're actually misreading, and I would even say abusing those texts. Mm-hmm. They're not there to be harmonized for our convenience. Uh, they're there to uh, tell the story of Israel in their particular way for their particular reasons, mm-hmm. which is why it's helpful to understand something about the historical context and, and what's going on. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so with with some of this theological diversity um, that you find in the Old Testament, or some of the di- even the differing accounts, I know that growing up myself in conservative evangelicalism, our tendency was always to try and harmonize those divergent voices, to always try to to you know, oh no, there's no such thing as a contradiction in the Old Testament. You can completely mm-hmm. harmonize these voices. You talk about an inspiration and incarnation that that is a dangerous tendency within evangelicalism. Can you kind of tell us why? Well, because we are not um, respecting the text that we have, and it, that is also that mindset is rooted in an assumption 
that needs to be itself examined, which is God would never do it this way. Mm, mm. Right? Because, again, a somewhat sweeping statement, but if our God is sort of a post-Enlightenment God, who is logical, who is mind, who um, you know would never give any hint of difference or contradiction, and if we see a contradiction that's not really there, it's just in our mind because we're sinful, because we can't read right, you know, these kinds of things are actually assumptions that are from our own cultural background. Mm. Mm. And they're there, but we have to almost let the Bible critique what we're coming at it with. We, 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 we do tend to, I mean, who doesn't do this, myself included, but we approach the Bible already thinking pretty much we know how it works. Mm. Yeah, We all do that on some level. But there has to be a circle of criticism where the Bible itself, if it keeps acting in a way that violates your premise, there's a good chance your premise has to be rethought. (laughs) And I think that's the problem, is we've never rethought the premise. We've always just tried to explain away those contradictions, haven't we? Yes, and I think the reason for that is not simply like a theological reason in the abstract, but it's... There's a sociological reason there, too, where, particularly in America, this is not so much the case, for example, in, in, in Britain, but in, 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 uh, in America, it certainly seems to be the case, that um, uh, we have you know, made these sorts of cultural assumptions of, of what God can or can't do, mm-hmm. and um, you know, we're not willing to examine them because we have fought these battles um, against the bad guys, hmm. um, the liberals that started the 19th century. And, you know, leaving aside the particular issues and how to adjudicate them, there's a lot of, you know, um, metaphorical blood that's been spilt hmm. in the evangelical and fundamentalist communities. And to sort of um, not honor how they've defended things puts a lot of sociological pressure on people who are inside those groups. Mm. And so, you know, the tendency is to sort of maintain that status quo because of fear of reprisal. If I can say this, is it almost what you're saying is almost, it's like, it's like boundary monitoring versus truth seeking almost. Yeah. And again, I know that the other side would, want to say it exactly the opposite. I'm boundary monitoring critical scholarship, and they're actually seeking truth sure. in Scripture. I, I, that's, but that's part of the sociological differences, too. But I would agree with that, the way you put that, that it's um, what is primary is our theological system. Mm-hmm. And we will read Scripture in keeping with that. And sometimes that's helpful, but sometimes it's, it's really bad if... Uh, you know, honest questioning and seeking honest and true dialogue is dismissed. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations that have gone something like this. You know, I might say, hey, listen, we need to rethink X, Y, and Z. And the response is, but we've never thought that. Huh. Wow. Now, I realize that. Um, actually, you may <laughs> have and you don't know it. Our tradition may have had some of these soundings, but... Um, what difference does it make if it's never been thought before? That doesn't mean make it wrong. Right. It could be. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, it, it could be completely wrong, but it's not wrong because it's new to your ears. Mm, mm. And and there it gets very complex, as you know, and as, as other people know, when 
It involves institutions that depend on constituency funding, um, and those are real pressures that 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 institutions or churches um, um, they they feel the the burden of those pressures, and that tends to make you collapse into that center, Did right? You, Instead of pushing boundaries and and, and when, when they need to be pushed. In saying that, do you do you yourself because it seems like if I understand you know the Bible wars of of the 1970s and all that, um, do you almost think that is there hope for evangelicalism given to to come to this kind of view of scripture? Given that it seems like almost rooted in evangelicalism, almost the nature of what it is, is a rebellion against the kind of critical scholarship that you're engaged in. Do, do you hold and that that's hope? the sociological dimension. See, that, that, yeah. that's exactly the pressure that who we are, our group identity, mm. is to keep away from us the very thing that you're trying to do. Mm. Mm. And again, that's, the, that's rather sweeping, but generally speaking, that I, I found that to be very true. Um, and what do you do about that? Well, I mean, I don't think you have a new person in charge who has an edict about what evangelicals would think. I think the problem is going to solve itself. I don't know how it's going to solve itself, but the problem is going to solve itself because evangelicals are going to, uh, I think, increasingly not uh, accept answers that don't really have an explanatory force. Mm. You know, when you see contradictions between Chronicles and Samuel or Kings, um, you can explain those differences uh, on the basis of the the setting and the th- and the theological program of the writers. You can explain those things very easily. Um, that I think will become a more pleasing option for people than saying, yeah, they certainly seem to be at odds, but we know in God's mind they all hang together, so fundamentally there's no difference here. Don't make anything out of it. Mm, mm. I, I just, and you know, my gut is telling me, if I can say this, that um, I'm just hearing more and more of that. Yeah, yeah. And partly it's because, I mean, the Internet, frankly. Yeah. Well, I, Cable TV and the Internet, I mean, you, you can't get away from this information. It's it, all over the place. It seems like it's almost, it seems like the Internet is almost the, it's, to this generation, what the printing press was to the Reformation, and and yeah, yeah I mean, you really can't you can't yeah. hide this stuff from your congregation forever. <laughs> well, and and I don't mean to implicate anyone sure, or sound sure. overly pejorative here, but <laughs> no, I know you didn't. But um, gatekeepers don't like free access to information. Yeah, yeah. Historically speaking, gatekeepers are about information control. Exactly. Um, that's hard to do nowadays. I mean, I, a quick anecdote. This actually happened um, where um, a friend of mine in a, in a school, which many people might not even recognize the name, but there's no need to, to get into those particulars, but on the faculty, they were discussing inspiration incarnation. And um, one of the professors, a theologian, uh, you know, was remarking on how, you know, he appreciated some things that I was saying. And there was a biblical scholar um, on the faculty who said, well, you know, there's really nothing new in this book, Hmm. which is largely true. Hmm. And I tried to do that very purposely, not to sort of be innovative in content, but more innovative in presentation. So um, the the theologian responded. He said, uh, well, it's new to me. I've never heard this stuff before. And the biblical scholar, a, a good man, you know, on, on the conservative side, uh, he responded. He said, "That's because 
our job is to sort of keep this from you. Wow. It wasn't quite that blunt, <laughs> but that's the gist of it. Our job is to sort of protect you from this kind of information, wow. to sift through it, to come up with the answers, and then present you with the answers. Wow. I think that's going to be much harder to do as the years and decades go by, which is to say I think evangelicalism is going to continue going through shifts and growing pains and, and people who are willing to critique and those who aren't. Um, but people are going to make their own decisions. What has to happen, again, we're getting back to the sociological issue, what has to happen is that the people who are maybe disaffected, who are looking for different paradigms, um, where can they land? Yeah. Where can they build new community? Yeah. Yeah. Not just Lone Rangers, but where can they actually settle? And that, to me, is a big question that's still somewhat up in the air. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm right in the middle of that question myself. <laughs> yeah, many people are, yeah. and that's many many. I mean, I get emails and 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 all sorts of you know Facebook things, and um, I see it on a regular basis. I, the, many many people are having that same struggle, where I know how I was raised. I want to respect and honor that. But the answers they give me don't work. Yeah, absolutely. For me, at least. Absolutely. I don't know where to go. I can't just go someplace else. I'm sort of, I have a sense of connection and belonging here, but I can't talk about these things in that context. Mm, mm. So where do you go? And I think that's sort of the moment that we find ourselves in. Mm. Getting back to the book, you talk about... um one of the things you talked about that really resonated with me that I have been talking uh, to some friends about before I read it in your book and I went, oh my goodness, <laughs> Dr. Enns is talking about this too, was the idea of apostolic hermeneutics and how the New Testament authors use the Old Testament. Um, can you give some examples of, well, first of all, can you define for us what you believe apostolic hermeneutics entails and maybe give us some examples of, of that? Well, apostolic hermeneutics, it's just a fancy way of saying how the New Testament writers used and handled the Old Testament as they talked about Jesus and the Gospels. And what what lies behind that is actually a parallel issue to the other stuff we talked about with Genesis. Genesis has a background, the ancient Near Eastern world. The New Testament and the writers, they have a background, too, of the Judaism of the time, where, you know, we've, it's all over the place. It's, it's um, telling the Old Testament story, but morphing it mm. to fit present circumstances. Mm. And so you've got biblical figures talking about what's happening right here in our midst. And, you know, you look at um, books in this, uh, what's called this, the Old Testament pseudepigrapha, the Apocrypha, and all sorts of Jewish writing at the time, including things we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you're familiar with sort of these ways of thinking that are pre-Christian, and then you look at the New Testament, you see, well, my goodness gracious, they're doing something very similar. They're, they're taking Old Testament texts, and they're using them in, in fresh, creative ways mm. to talk about Jesus. Mm. Mm. Um and so, you know, I mean, for example, I give several examples in the book, but uh, one of my favorite examples is how Matthew's Gospel in chapter 2 uses um, a section from the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, Hosea chapter 11, where in Hosea, uh, you know, the prophet is very clearly talking about Israel, 
And he says, out of Egypt I called my son. And son means Israel, and it's talking about the delivery from Egyptian slavery. In other words, Hosea is looking back in time and saying, you know, out of Egypt I called my son. Um, and, you know, this is how much I loved and treated uh, my son, but all they did was rebel against me. And, you know, it's led us to a lot of trouble, but I forgive them anyway. That's the gist of chapter 11. Mm. Matthew looks at that passage and he sees Jesus as a boy going down into Egypt to escape Herod and then coming back again. And he says, and this is fulfilled what, um, what, what God said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So he's sort of saying, listen, this, this um, whole episode of Hosea is fulfilled in Jesus. And you know, that, looks really odd to us, perhaps, yeah. because, well, wait a minute, Hosea's talking about Israel, and Matthew's talking about Jesus, but that's that's a very typical move in that world to find a way to bring an ancient text into what's happening at the moment. Mm. And the moment is Jesus, who they believed is the culmination of Israel's whole story. And so they will sort of look at the Old Testament from that perspective. Um, it's not sort of, sometimes it appears more like, gosh, where are they getting this from? This is a little bit more, uh, I think, understandable in the sense that, you know, Israel is God's son in the Old Testament, and there in like Exodus chapter 4, and, you know, Jesus is God's son also, so that there's a connection there saying, you know, maybe Jesus is like Israel. Mm-hmm. You know, Israel's role was to be a light to the Gentiles and to sort of attract people, the nations, to what God is really like. And so Jesus is there sort of doing the same thing. You know, if 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 you want to know what God looks like in the Old Testament, ideally you should be looking at Israel. And, and it seems like with that one, that that one's a little more easier to reconcile. It seems that there's some where, I know like some of the passages that Paul uses, like for instance, uh, I think in Galatians uh, it seems like he actually at times quotes an Old Testament passage and makes it say the exact opposite of what it originally said. In, in situations yeah. like that, um, I guess the natural the natural question becomes for us, if this is how the apostles treated um, the Old Testament, is this how we can also treat it and or was that or was that kind of a a one-time, right. <laughs> as the dispensationalists would love to say, dispensation of yeah. of how they use scripture. Right. Well, I mean, that's one of the you know sixty four thousand dollar questions. <laughs> yeah. is, you know, what do we do? It's easier to have a Bible that behaves itself than we can yeah. say, what do we do? We just follow it. And, but the Bible doesn't behave itself the way we want it to. So the question is, what do we do? And uh, I, you know, I don't have you know a final answer to that. I mean, the way I look at it is that. There are um, methods of interpretation used by the New Testament writers which are which reflect their cultural context. But what they're doing is they're they're employing these methods to promote a a Christ-centered understanding of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I, I think that we can look at that template, so to speak, and say, listen, you know, we might not have methods like that, we might not approach text from that point of view. I think we actually do, sidebar. I, I think actually we do do this sort of thing more than we like to admit. But, you know, when we're on our best exegetical behavior, we try not to sort of 
uh, take text out of context. So I understand that, but there is the other dimension to that where maybe we can and probably should you know, emulate the New Testament writers in this Christ-centeredness mm, mm. thing. Mm. <laughs> you know, with, I mean, God's story actually culminates in Christ, and that is, I think the New Testament keeps coming back to that again and again. How they get there is interesting, but that they get there is, I think, less controversial. Yeah, yeah. Right? Now the question is, how do we get there? Good question. I mean, welcome to Christianity. <laughs> welcome to the world of Christian thought. We're, we're thinking about those kinds yes, of things. Yes. The pressure, I mean, forgive me for going on here, but the, the oh. pressure, I think, is that it's part of the, um, the conservative um, plan of attack, so to speak, to say, if you don't have the Bible right as the foundation, you can't get anywhere. Mm. And I think the history of the Christian church Again, forgive me for that sweeping statement, but I think the history of the Christian Church demonstrates that there is much more at work in finding theological truth mm. than simply getting the Bible right. The tremendous diversity in the history of the Church, and also in the Church today around the world, in terms of how it handles biblical passages and how they're interpreted and what they mean, I think that should tell us something about whether we have to make sure first order we get the Bible right mm. before we can do or say anything of value. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's contradicted by simply common sense in plain sight. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like you even have Jesus in places like Matthew 5 with the Sermon on the Mount totally undermining the Old Testament narrative and revealing, and, and I know you say this in your book, first of all, I was just going to say revealing a progression of Scripture and, and you say in the book that we have to look at Scripture as a story that's moving in a certain direction. Um, mm -hmm. With that said, you know, and obviously, you know, Jesus seems to override things like the the Canaanite genocide with Scriptures right. like "Love your enemies" and and because this is right. how your Father is, um, right. which would seem to undermine that. With that being said, do you think that Scripture is more about um, about catching the trajectory? than maybe catching the historical grammatic significance of a particular passage more about, and, and let me just go a little farther by saying, if it is about trajectories, then does this also speak to even how the believer uses the New Testament? Because I know, you know, in most churches that we go in today, some of Paul's admonitions to women uh, that he gave, you know, to Timothy and to Titus, um, Mm -hmm. seem to, we don't seem to really look at those as prescriptive for the church today. We seem to have moved beyond a lot of those without any problem. So right. would you be comfortable with saying that it's more about getting the trajectory than just necessarily abiding by passages, even if they're in the New Testament? Uh, my short answer, yes. Uh, I, I like to use language of how uh, there is a wisdom dimension in reading anything in the Bible, meaning, like in Proverbs, uh, the wisdom dimension is that, you know, uh, it's not just the words on the page. You have to understand how they fit, and maybe changing circumstances will lead you to take even a very different point of view. Mm. You know, like um, Proverbs talks about wealth, well, wealth can be good, bad, or indifferent. It depends on the context. It depends on what's happening. Right. You know, answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool. What do you do? Well, it depends on the moment. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think even embedded in the Bible 
Um, and then looking at you know the Old Testament, the Book of Chronicles, vis-a-vis Samuel King's Chronicles is is later and has a different program in mind. There's trajectory, I think, in Chronicles. So we see that, and the New Testament as well. I think that we're part of maybe on a higher level, but we're still on a trajectory mm. because we can't forget the offense of the Incarnation in the New Testament, too, mm. that you have uh, culturally um, contained ways of expressing ultimate reality. Mm. Mm. And Paul is engaging culture, and he's engaging culture with gospel, and he is having that conversation, so to speak, uh, absolutely. between Jews and Gentiles. You know, I mean, these are these issues that he's addressing, and he comes at those things, certainly with, people say cultural baggage. It's not baggage. Mm, mm. It's just culture. <laughs> yeah. You know? <clears throat> it's innocuous. That... What what you said? I love I love the way you just said that. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal this phrase from you, but the offense of the incarnation. I love that because if we if we bear that in mind while we're reading the Bible, all of a sudden a lot of things make a lot more sense than they used to. So I'm mm-hmm. using that. Thank you for that. You're welcome. You get my bill. No problem. <laughs> make that check payable too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, your your book, The Evolution of Adam, is kind of in the last year. That book has really been a bombshell in Christianity. Um, not that, like you said, not that you're necessarily doing anything brand new, but you're bringing it on such a level of, um, uh, on a layman's level where anybody can read that book and really get what you're saying that I think it's caused a lot of ripples. And one of the things that you said in the book that you, the reason that you wrote it is because a synthesis between biblically conversant Christian faith and evolution is a pressing concern. Um, Given given the idea of what we've talked about from inspiration and incarnation, and the idea that evolution is really proving it's not a theory in the popular sense of the word, but more of almost a given, um, and and of course you know there's there's still different ways of even understanding that. With with something like that, how should we understand the creation stories in Genesis one and two, and how maybe have we misappropriated those? Generally, we've misappropriated them in our contemporary culture by assuming something of them that we don't have a right to assume, Mm. that this must be a story of time-space events, that if you had a video camera, you might not get exactly, but generally speaking, the gist would be there. Mm. Mm. Uh, And I think that is a, a misappropriation based on our engagement of knowledge in general. And I know that makes people nervous because you 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 can't let outside knowledge tell you what to do with the Bible. Well, we do that all the time. You you actually can't read the Bible without outside knowledge. Mm, If you don't know what grass is or mountains are. I mean, that knowledge didn't come from the Bible. It came from our common experience. And we do that, I mean, that's a rather simplistic example, but it holds. That's how all of us invariably read. We read from the point of view of our tradition, our culture, our experience, um, our reason. You know, that's we, we come at the Bible that way. And uh, in, in our day and age, we're being called upon, and, and it's not new, it's, it's, it's a couple hundred years old. You know, 
um, I'm, I'm not wrecking something that's been on that's been completely settled. Right. I'm just drawing attention in a different way to the same old problem. Mm. What do you do with the Bible that is so clearly a part of the cultures in which it was uh, written? Mm. We've known this for a long time. What do we do with it theologically? Right. So, you know, and with that in mind, you you go to Genesis, you know, the creation stories, Genesis one, then two and three, and uh, you know, you do the best you can to try to ferret out um, how that general knowledge and the Bible are in conversation at that point, not for the purpose of, you know, correcting the Bible, right. but for the purpose of understanding it. Right. right? And if you get it wrong, um, God's not going to beat you. Because <laughs> we all get it wrong exactly. on some very serious level. Thank God right? he's not going to beat us for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I used to tell my students that if theological perfection is requisite for getting into heaven, then I'll be very lonely. <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, we, and we, we, we realize too, and this is you know, another dimension to this is trying to set up um, the conversation very differently. And this is what I think at least Protestants can learn from, uh, more typical Jewish ways of going about it. Okay, no, there is no one Jewish way, but generally speaking, there is a a history of dialogue, or at least tolerance of differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. Where if you read the Talmud, you know there's a great collection of, of of oral tradition and commentary on that oral tradition about law and how to live and what God wants from you. Uh, you know, you see rabbis arguing with each other. And then they just move on to the next topic. Hmm. The resolution is not the point. The point is the dialogue. That is how you, um, that's part of communing with God. Hmm. Hmm. It's by struggling with the text. And what is the history of Israel if not a struggle? Hmm. Hmm. That's what Israel means in Hebrew, hmm. you know, struggling with God. That's, that is sort of what they do. Um, I, we may sell the Bible short by thinking that these things are to be quickly resolved, why wouldn't God do it this way? Of course, of course, He wants us to know exactly what He means. How do you know? <laughs> Seriously, it's a how, cultural how, assumption. It really is. It is. Well, because we have to, because we won't know what to believe until we get the Bible completely right. Hmm. Well, there, there, there's some truth to that, but it might not be as widespread as you think. There may be some things that are more important than other things, and there may be um, room for disagreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, in fact, again, the church witnesses to quite clearly over history and across the world today. Definitely. Yeah. With, with uh, your understanding of Genesis, I know the Adam and Eve story. So many people don't have a hard time when you, you know, the history of taking the first eleven chapters of Genesis metaphorically have it's it's a long history and it's been present for a long time in some denominations. Um, I mean, I remember when I was in in a secular college. That's what we were taught in in our Old Testament um, uh, survey class. But when you get to Adam, there seems to be a real hiccup, for especially for conservative evangelicals, um, because Adam's significance goes beyond um, Genesis all the way into right. Pauline theology. Right. Um, first of all, let me let me make this a twofold question. The first part. What do you think the the Adam story is? What what was the writer of Genesis trying to do through the Adam story? 
And then maybe we can start, uh, you know, I've got some questions about Paul's Adam. Maybe we can start breaking that down. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, you know, the, the, the significance of Adam for Pauline theology, I think, is very um, present. Um, I, you know, personally don't know if... Uh, I don't know how committed Paul is to what many Protestants think he's committed to. Uh, I mean, he mentions Adam in Romans chapter 5. Uh, I don't think, you know, my reading of Romans, I don't think that's like the crowning point and the historical Adam is necessary to talk about sin and Jesus and resurrection. Um, Paul's been talking about what he's saying in Romans 5 for three, four chapters Hmm. without bringing this into it. It's almost like, hey, by way of example, it's sort of like this. Hmm. You know, Adam did this and Jesus undid it. Um, But that's part of Paul's, Paul's own cultural assumptions, which is, again... You know, what I said earlier when you asked about the trajectories in the New Testament, that's, I mean, I don't expect Paul to think differently about human origins. Yeah. Well, he's a writer of the Bible. Exactly. <laughs> I don't expect him to think outside of his culture because he's a writer of the Bible. Mm, wow. If God moves that way, I mean, why, I mean, does he have to jump out of that cultural moment, you know, uh, to, to sort of satisfy uh, our or ideas of what he should be saying, mm, mm. you know. Um, and of course, that doesn't leave you with firm answers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think there are firm answers to be had. I think they're there. I just don't think they're everywhere. And to become comfortable with that, you know, in a Jewish sense, as I said before, I think is a very good lesson that we could be uh, uh, that, that we could be learning, and and to maybe make some of these problems less so. Definitely. Definitely. Not burdens to faith, but uh, but you asked a, uh, you had a two part question. I yeah. think I may only have hit yeah, half the, of it. The, What's the other? The half? first part of it was, what do you think that the author of Genesis was doing with the Adam story? Oh, if it's not gosh. about a yeah. a real first man, what is it about? Oh, brother. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good question. I, I I'm sort of torn between a couple of options. Um, and one is, you know, what I express in the book is how. Adam sure looks a lot like Israel. Mm. And I, I, I do think that this is a, a, a very legitimate, true interpretation of, of the Adam story, where you know Adam is created by God out of nothing, out of dust. You know, just a lowly Adam made out of dust. And he's placed into a lush land and given a command to follow. If he follows, he stays in the garden. If he doesn't follow, he gets kicked out. And uh, that is the story of Israel. Mm. God forms Israel out of nothing, out of slavery, and puts them in the land, gives them commands to follow. And if there's any refrain in the Old Testament, it's this, obey the commands and you will live, Mm. meaning you live a long time in the land. Mm. Disobey and you're gone. Maybe not not tomorrow, but eventually you, you, you will be exiled from the land. And um, it's hard not to see that parallel, which has been seen, that that's pre-Christian. Mm. That's not something that I'm making up. So I think that's a, that's a significant dimension of this story, that it's it's actually a preview. It's Israel saying, you know, in these mythic categories, our struggles today have always been a part of who we are as a people. Mm. Our struggles with God 
but yet God is still here with us. And we left the garden, uh, we left Canaan, we left the land, but we're also, we are coming back. In fact, I think when they're finally putting this stuff together in the Bible, they are back, mm, mm. which is a demonstration of God's faithfulness that despite their tendency not to really listen to the wisdom of God, but to go their own way, and, and, and see, in that sense, it is a universal story. Well, <laughs> you know, Israel's story is the universal story. That's yeah. why I sort of go back and forth between those two options. Um, but, you know, if, if uh, this is how it's always been, and yet God is still here. Mm, mm. He hasn't left us. He hasn't abandoned his people. I think one of the important things with what you're saying uh, for our listeners to note, but the ones especially that haven't read the book, is, um, you know, touching back on that point you just said about the fact that they're back in the land. This is this is after the Babylonian exile because so many of us have been taught, you know, Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And therefore, uh, you know, what you're talking about, the analogy you're using wouldn't really work. But if Genesis was written post-exile, then all of a sudden that does make sense that it's Israel's story recapitulated. Right. And when I say written, I don't necessarily mean sort of written out of whole cloth. Sure. Ever thought of before, but I do think these are very ancient traditions and stories, whether oral or written, but that, um, you know, as circumstances change throughout Israel's history, I mean, these things can't help but be um, brought into those moments, mm. so to speak. And I think the crowning moment is that post-exilic moment, which is, you know, really universally accepted on the part of biblical scholars with modification, but um, it's it's only with you know more conservative wings of evangelicalism or fundamentalism where these things are still held as absolutely no wrong. You can't think this way. Um, you know, this this way of explaining why the Pentateuch behaves the way that it does, especially in Hebrew, and why. You know, you see certain patterns. Uh, these things have been not fully explained in my mind, but the direction is basically the right one, mm -hmm. which is centuries of coming together, and then the final thrust is in view of the trauma of exile. Mm -hmm. And that will bring people to write their story. Yeah. You tend to write your story when you need to hear it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Almost almost as a statement of faith, almost, huh? Well, I think it is. Yeah. In that sense, I think the Bible is a statement of the faith of post-exilic Israelites reflecting on their tradition and their history. Hmm. Hmm. And, and, and that's an interesting way of, of, of putting it and thinking about it, that it's in, um, it's in a state of, uh, uh, I guess, coming back, and it's okay now, mm -hmm. but still it's not completely okay because you're, you know, you're in the land, but you still have problems because the Persians are knocking on your door because they're running the show. And after that, it's the Greeks. And then, you know, after that, more or less uh, the Romans, you know, you have this tension of Israel being back home, but not... Um, living out the ancient promises of God that the land is your inheritance. Mm, mm. You know, as long as Caesar's on the throne or a Persian king or a Greek king, you're, you're not, 
um, the picture is not complete. It's not. It's not there yet. Mm. Now, one of the, one of the things that with with Paul's Adam, people are you know many people aren't going to have a problem with saying someone like Jonah would have been a mythic figure from history or you know some other some other characters in the Old Testament. Many people are going to have a problem questioning the historicity of Adam because of Paul's connection to things like original sin, which we've deconstructed a lot on this podcast. But can you speak to that idea of what do you say to the person that says, well, you know, the entirety of the theology of the New Testament of salvation and sin and redemption is all based on Paul's historicity. What would you say to that? Um, I'd say you're wrong and then run away. <laughs> uh, well, no, I'd say I don't agree with that. And, 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 I'm not the first one to disagree with that. Uh, you know, when when I hear, you know, the whole gospel falls apart, there is, uh, you know, a, 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 um, a, I think a significant factor that has to be considered here, namely that how we understand, how Paul understood Adam, follow, follow the convoluted chain there, <laughs> how we understand how Paul understood Adam in Western Christianity, has been influenced by Augustine. Mm, mm. Um, I think Augustine was a brilliant, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, but we all have our blind spots. And, uh, you know, you read commentaries on Romans, and when they engage Augustine, and you regularly see uh, comments that, you know, Augustine misread something because of his Latin, you know, that he had in front of him wasn't actually reflecting something authentic in the Greek. And... Um, that affected how he thought. He also may have been affected by um, his own experiences and, uh, you know, the transmission of sin through sexual reproduction. Uh, I mean, those things aren't in the Genesis story. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not there. You have to put it there somehow. The problem with the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, the stories, is that there are so many wide-open gaps that we would love to say, well, why is this happening here? Why is this happening? People do tend to fill in those gaps, mm. and we, we fill them in based on our theological system. Mm. And it's good to always come back and to be reminded, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, I know why you're saying it, can you at least acknowledge that it's not in the text? Yeah. yeah. And we're bringing this from somewhere. And I think, you know, reading the Adam story as... Um, just on the level of Genesis, forget Paul for a second, but just reading it as a story of Adam and Eve were, uh, you know, perfect, and they um, made a mistake, and it's because of that that their children, that guilt is actually downloaded onto them. Mm. That's going far beyond what Genesis or the Old Testament says. It's also going, I think, far beyond what the New Testament says with these interesting, uh, you know, and, 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 and challenging passages like Romans chapter 5, mm. uh, which is not the norm. I mean, Paul mentions Adam twice. He's not mentioned in the Old Testament at all after Genesis 5. He's not a major figure. Mm. And, um, and it's almost as if Paul needs to appeal to something in Israel's story to get his point across. Huh about who Jesus is and the magnanimity and the bigness of what he did. Almost like he, how, how he connects, how Jesus was connected so much with David. Would it be kind of working in the same way? 
Not not necessarily. I mean, I'm not saying David's mm-hmm. historicity is not valid. I'm just saying, right? Almost like the same way we've got to connect it somehow with our with our history. Right, and and if there's anything, I mean, one way of trying to explain the nature of how the New Testament authors use the old is is I think exactly just what you said. They are they are connecting Jesus' story with Israel's story. Mm. They're saying that Jesus is like David. I mean, in the Old Testament, the the hope for restoration and a messianic David-like figure back to the glory days mm. when we got it all right, that, that 40-year period when David was around, <laughs> you know, that's pretty much it. That's the ideal to get back to, so to speak. And so the messianic David-like figure is the one who's going to bring that about. And so connecting Jesus and who he is and what he did and what he said is saying this is the Davidic figure. Mm. You know, that's, 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 how you, um, that's how you tell the story. So right. good. That's that's I I love that connection because now I mean that makes so much sense as to why why Paul would grab at him like that. When I read your book, I, I I was tracking completely with you, but that even that even ups the ante for me and makes it even more apparent. You know that Paul's mm-hmm. just simply almost like he's fishing in Israel's story for how's a way. Not not saying that he didn't believe in the historicity of Adam because he probably did, right. but right. saying that he was almost fishing in the Old Testament. Just like he did, just just like the apostolic hermeneutics worked, that he right. was fishing in the Old Testament to to find something to connect Jesus and say Jesus is the new Israel, right? Mm. And, and and the suddenness of what Paul does lends credence to what you just said. Mm. That listen, if if Adam is if Adam is the cause of all human misery and separation from God. I would like to see that someplace in the Old Testament, mm, mm. and I don't. Yeah. And, and, and people say, well, it's hinted at here and there. Okay, I need more than hints. Yeah. If this is going to be a central pillar of what we think about God and the nature of humanity, I think we need more than that. And people will say, well, Paul settles that. Okay, I understand the force of the argument. I want to take Paul very seriously, but if we place Paul again in his Jewish moment, mm. And with the rhetoric of Romans, and by rhetoric I mean that in a purely positive sense, not sure. a negative sense, sure. his argument in, in Romans, where Paul is, Paul is trying to make an unprecedented case that Jew and Gentile are on the same footing. Yeah. They're, on the, they're on the same footing. And he tells the Jews, he says, listen, um, I know you've got law, but... First of all, you don't obey it. We've got a problem in our whole history where we just can't seem to get with the program. But Paul starts to say, listen, the point of all this may not be keeping law better. Mm. And why does he say that? Because, you know, they expect the Messiah to come. Again, this is somewhat, you know, a blanket statement, but it's 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 generally and significantly true. The... Um, the, the the hope was for a restoration of Israel back to the good old days where God is going to send his Messiah, a military king who is really good at keeping Torah, and he's going to make sure people don't fall into the same mess again of exile. Mm. Jesus comes, whom Paul believed to be God's Messiah, and God's solution is not to set up a kingdom on earth with land and swords and horses and chariots and and fighting battles with other kingdoms. His solution was crucifixion Mm. and resurrection. Mm. 
And, you know, I mean, I can't get into Paul's head, but I'm, I'm surmising here, and I, I, I try to lay this out in the book somewhat patiently, is that um, Paul might be thinking, my goodness gracious, if this is how God solves the problem by undeath, <laughs> you know, maybe the problem is not simply keeping law or not keeping law. Maybe it's not re- revisiting the Jewish state. Maybe the problem is much deeper. Wow. You know, and, and where do you go to get the theological language Wow. to sort of say that? And Paul says, you know, he, he, he grabs for Adam to try to get this point across that what Jesus is doing is he's actually addressing a truly universal problem because we all die. Yeah, yeah. Don't we? Yeah. yeah, so maybe this is all something, what Jesus did is something for not just for Jew, but for Jew and Gentile together. That's so right? good. And, and brings Adam into the discussion, so to speak. That is so good. I mean, that may, that completely connects it for me. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> I mean, okay. it's kind of like I could good have had to hear that. <laughs> <It's perfect. laughs> Uh, in in wrapping up, this is, this has been a great discussion, and I could talk I could talk to you for hours because I so enjoy uh, I, I've so enjoyed your books and I so enjoy dialoguing with you. And there's something about you know when you actually can talk to someone um, even beyond reading their book that just makes it come alive. And I can start to see some of the 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 connections happen that maybe didn't happen for me in the books. So thank you for that. Um, you bet. The the last question I want to ask you is based on a based on a statement that you made. I think it was in uh, the Evolution of Adam. You said all of our theologies are provisional, which I completely agree with. When we forget that fact, fact we run the risk of equating what we think of God with God Himself. Which I absolutely love this quote. My question is: What are your suggestions for avoiding um, digging our heels in on our provisional theologies? Oh. Well, I hate to sound sappy and preacher-like, but um, you know, if if whatever Adam's doing, whatever some of these things are doing, who knows? But I, I do, you know, read the Gospels and the letters, and I think thinking of other people better than of yourself, mm. and humility and love, and I think you know that's the way you see God. First <laughs> John, that's the way. Uh, people can look at you and say, "This is different." Wow! And I and I, it sounds like, well, that's not really satisfying. Well, try living like that for an hour. Yeah, yeah. And you see how hard it is. I mean, you see the the things that Jesus says to do. This is what members of the kingdom do. Mm. You mm. turn the other cheek. You pray for those who persecute you. Mm. Yeah, you just come on. <laughs> that's highly unrealistic. That's it, though. I mean, it, and if you if you practice that, I think you, you know you may have more uh, success. <laughs> you know, in, in remembering that how we think about God is always a step removed from the real thing. Mm. That more than one step, multiple steps. Mm. You know, and it's okay. That's just the way it is. That's the way it's set up. You don't have absolute knowledge, and and you're always wrong about something. And you know, very times we're right about something too. That that make to me that's I so resonate with what you just said because I think to myself, you know, Jesus didn't call um, he didn't call theologians he called disciples, and it seems like in order to learn truth, we have to live truth first. Um, yeah. It almost seems like we're called in this way of life without understanding, and the understanding comes through the living of it. Mm-hmm. So. Which is the very thing Jesus 
criticized the leaders for not doing, which yes. Jeremiah criticized his leaders for not doing. It's, it's, um, you know, basically don't be a hypocrite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's hard. It's hard not to be a hypocrite. It's hard to follow the teachings of Jesus. It's yeah. excruciatingly difficult. Yeah, it is. You know, and if we focus on that, some of these things might go away. Yeah. You know? Thank God for his spirit, else we'd be in real trouble. <laughs> yeah, right. Dr. Enns, you have been amazing. I have thoroughly enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much. Folks, um, you, you definitely need to pick up these books, The Evolution of Adam, The Inspiration and in- Inspiration and Incarnation. And from what I understand, I saw on your Pathios blog that you have a new book coming out the end of September. September. What's the title of that book? Oh yeah, uh, actually, it just—it's available now. It's called the Bible and the Believer, and uh, the subtitle is um, "How to Read the Bible Critically and Religiously." Mm, mm. And it's a book that came out of a, a symposium that I did with two other scholars: one, Mark Brettler, who's a Jewish scholar; Daniel Harrington, who's a Catholic priest, and you know I'm a Protestant. And we sort of came together to say how, in your traditions. Can you read the Bible with, with a critical eye, meaning not criticizing it, but just you know, um, engaging modern thought and modern scholarship, but also have sort of a life of faith? What does that look like? So we tried to sort of lay that out in the book. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. You bet. Wow, what an absolute great discussion. Dr. Enns, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on Beyond the Box. I thoroughly enjoyed my time with Dr. Enns. I tell you, I could have talked his ear off. Actually, I could have let him talk my ear off because there's so much I wanted to hear him say. So many questions I had, so many things I wanted to get clarification on. And I tell you, I just so appreciate um, him taking the time and him really Uh, just articulating so many of the things that I feel like so many of us on Beyond the Box have really wrestled with and um, some really helpful uh, responses to a lot of our questions. So thank you so much, Dr. Enns, for taking the time. And mostly, I want to thank you for the response to that final question, um, where I asked you how we were to be flexible with our theologies and how we were to um, to be charitable with our theologies. And just the answer that you gave about love just really resonated with me. Love really does cover a multitude of theological sins. I really believe that. So I just hope you'll check out Dr. N's website. You can, he's, he's found a couple of different places on the internet. Um, you can check out peterinsonline.com for his actual website. And he also has a Pathios blog, which is really great. Pathios.com forward slash blogs forward slash Peter ends. So I want to encourage you to check those out. The books that we were talking about today in this episode, the first one um, that we primarily talked about is a book entitled Inspiration and Incarnation. Um, The subtitle is Evangelicals and the Problem of the Old Testament. I want to encourage you to pick up that book. That is an excellent read that really struggles and wrestles with a lot of the same questions that we've had on Beyond the Box over the last few years. So I think you'll really benefit from reading that, especially his section on apostolic hermeneutics, which really resonates with the podcast we did with Derek Flood um, a couple of months back. I think you'll really, really enjoy the book. Also, make sure to pick up the book, The Evolution of Adam. Great, great book. Um, Really, if you've struggled with how to reconcile things like the theory of evolution with a faith in Jesus and a faith in the, in scripture, 
uh, I want to encourage you to get that book. I think it will really help you. So pick up both those books, check them out. And most of all, I want to hear your thoughts on this podcast. I know there's a lot of really, um, wow, a lot of really heavy things that we covered in this podcast and also a lot of very controversial things. So I know a lot of you out there are not necessarily going to agree and that's okay. Uh, we, you know, we encourage that at beyond the box. We love to hear your thoughts. We love to dialogue with you because we realize we are far from having the answers figured out. We're on this journey with you. And so I really want to hear your feedback. I want to hear your agreements, your disagreements, maybe places for you that the, the light bulbs started to go off, maybe places that, you know, we just totally lost you. Um, I just love to hear you clarify that. So few different places you can do that. You can, of course, go to our website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com. You'll find this episode. You can post any comments, questions, um, any disagreements, agreements, anything you want to post there, you can put it there. You can also check out our Facebook page. That's probably the best place to dialogue. Um, Facebook.com slash beyondthebox. That is just a great community of people that get together and bounce around these topics. I have learned so much from each of you. Um, so definitely check out that Facebook page if you get a chance. If you want to sign up for our Twitter feed, it's twitter.com slash btbpodcast. That will just usually notify you when the newest episode's available. And one last way you can get a hold of us is you can leave a message for us. Um, leave us your audio comment. Tell us if you'd like us to play it on an episode. Tell us that. We'd love to include your audio comments on the episodes in the future. Um, let us know what you thought about this episode or any other episode you've listened to. That number is 626-246-6269. Once again, that's 626-246-6269, or you can dial 626-24-NO-BOX. When you dial that number, it'll go straight to our answering service, and it, you'll be able to leave a message there. If you don't want to dial the number, if it's long distance for you and you'd like that service to call you back, you can go to beyondtheboxpodcast.com. You'll see a Call Me widget on the right-hand side of the screen. Just click that widget, put in your name and phone number, and our answering service will actually call you back so you can leave a message there. Any way you connect with us, we're just so thankful for it. And Dr. Enns, we're very grateful that you were with us today. Thank you so much for taking the time once again to have this conversation, and I just look forward to more conversations in the future. You guys have a great week. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Beyond the Box.